Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Dan Siegel. Dan is a friend to me, to Sounds True, and quite honestly, he has the qualities of what I would call a universal friend. He leads with openness, curiosity, and an interest in connecting. Dan is a hugely accomplished person. He's a graduate of Harvard Medical School and clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine. He's the executive director of the Mindsight Institute and founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. Dan is someone who I would describe as a visionary, creative thinker. He's able to see commonalities and the meeting ground between different disciplines of inquiry. It was in the early 1990s that he developed the field of interpersonal neurobiology. He's also the author of numerous books, including The Mindful Brain, The Developing Mind, and a new book that's the subject of our conversation, Intraconnected, Mui, that's me and we, as the integration of self, identity, and belonging. Additionally, with Sounds True, Dan Siegel has created an audio series called The Neurobiology of We, along with several other audio programs that you can learn more about at SoundsTrue.com. Now, here's my conversation, Mui to Mui, with Dan Siegel. Dan, welcome. Tammy, it's great to be here with you, and it's wonderful to connect in this setting. Uh, even though we have our connections in other ways, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you for having me. Let's start with another term that came to you. It's original to you, Intraconnected, the title of your new book. Why did you feel the need to introduce, tell us the origin story, if you will, of this word, intraconnected. Yeah. Well, thanks for starting with that, Tammy. You know, the number of words we have is huge. So to make a new word is always a big deal because we probably talk too much anyway. We should more be in the experience of being and not filtering everything through language. 
But back in your home state in Colorado, I was with some system scientists doing a retreat where we were up in the mountains in Crestone, in a place actually where people have been meditating, the evidence suggests, for about 20,000 years. And in that experience, we were placed within the forest by our individual selves for three days. And when we came out, we met in a circle in the forest and everyone was sharing what that experience for those three days was like. And my colleagues said some incredibly beautiful things. They felt interconnected with the whole forest. They felt interdependent, interwoven. They used Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful term, interbeing. Uh, they felt they were interwere. Um, all these interterms were being used. And then it came my time to speak in the circle. And I really resonated with the feeling that everyone was describing. But the word beginning with inter just didn't feel right because the experience for this body of Dan in that forest was that after a few hours, the separation of this encapsulated system called a body and the trees and the creek and the sky dissolved away and, and there was a kind of um, wholeness to it. So I was the clouds, I was the creek, I was the trees, I was the body. And so when I was trying to explain this to my colleagues, I said, I don't even know what to say in English, that there was a connection of the whole that was, um, it was, uh, and there was no word. So I said, well, I, oh, I know what the word is. It's intra-connected. There was a connectedness within the whole of that fullness of being. And everyone sort of nodded, said, yeah, interconnected, great, whatever. And then when we went back to our place we were staying and I had a computer and I wanted to take some notes about what that three-day experience was like, every time I would type, well, it was intraconnected, the word, you know, corrector, whatever it's called, the autocorrector would change it to interconnected. And I thought there was a defect in my computer. So I looked it up. There is no word for the connections within the whole there is no word intraconnected. So then I felt, you know, if, if in English, at least, we don't have a word that speaks to the connectivity within the whole, how do we actually talk about that or act on behalf of this greater good? Um, and so that is how the word was born. Um, I'm surprised it isn't a word, actually. The more I use it, the more I see how useful it is to talk about, you know, being the whole of life, for example, how do we speak on behalf of that? How do we feel into that? How do we act on behalf of uh, the benefit for the whole? So that's where the word comes from. Now, I think some of these distinctions, they're nuanced, and yet they have a lot of meaning. So if you were to say, right now, you and I, we're interconnected, I feel that. But yeah. if you were to say we're intra-connected, what would be the distinctions? How would what would you be meaning by the interconnected versus the intraconnected? Yeah. If you were talking about you and me right now, exactly. So, you know, you can live your life by yourself, Tammy, and I can live my life by myself. In quotes around the self, um, and we would say, "Oh, we're just independent beings." You know, you're there, I'm here, and that's fine. Um, but then when we start communicating with each other, we say, "Tammy's there." Dan is here, 
And there's a betweenness in our communication and our respect and our care for each other. And it would be so beautiful to then say, let's develop our relational connections. Let's develop our interconnection. And even in different nonprofit organizations I work with, sometimes our, you know, our mission statement says, we want, to, we want to have people realize the interconnected reality of life on earth. And you know, for years, uh, working with those organizations, I've just felt fine with that. But then when I was in the forest, and I realized that even the word interconnected falls short, I think of what people really mean is that there is a wholeness to life on earth. So right now, in terms of the word intraconnected, I would say that there's a kind of field that connects us, us meaning the body called Tammy, the body called Dan, and the body of every human being that's listening. And within that wholeness, then right in this moment, when I even start to use the word intraconnected, and this may sound maybe too much, but when you feel it, it's just, it's just a feeling of the reality of it. The body called Tammy is me. The space between us is me. There's no, it, it doesn't feel when you drop the separateness that's connected, which is what the interconnected word means. Two things are connected to each other. When you let go of the entity experience, where the entity has a separate quality, that there's the body Tammy, the body Dan, this feeling of an identity that's bigger than the body allows us to feel that the Tammy Dan and everyone listening experience is a kind of, I mean, we use the term relational field, which sounds kind of, you know, maybe too uh, not specific, but there's a, there's a wholeness within the relationality where you, you no longer speak from the individual parts but you're speaking from the wholeness of it all. So the journey you've been on to make sounds true, you know, the journey this body of Dan has been on about interpersonal neurobiology, in many ways, they're the same journey. And so when you reached out and said, would you like to do this experience of a conversation? The feeling was, you know, humans need this conversation. It isn't even like conversation between me and you. This is like a conversation for our whole human family. So that's the interconnected nature when you just look at the system of humanity. But then when I think about what those trees literally said to me when I was in that forest those three days, and this is going to sound odd, and I've never actually said this so publicly. I, I don't think I've ever said it, except in that small group. The trees spoke to me and said, protect us. You're in a human body and humans are destroying us. These are the aspen trees in Colorado, way up there. They said, protect us. And I was like, whoa, you know, now you could say, oh, Dan's just hallucinating. But whatever it is, the feeling was I got a message. It was in English, protect us, those words. And the message in this body was then carried out through the word interconnected that yeah, I have to act on behalf, and part of the book Interconnected is saying, we need to act on behalf of those trees, of the whole system, because we're too separated. Even with the word interconnected, we're still here, and I'm there, you know, and we're separate. So 
how do you actually start feeling into the reality of the intraconnected whole? So okay. I don't know how, to, how does so, that feel so, for you? So well, well, so the part about the trees talking to you doesn't sound that weird to me and saying okay. protect us. That part, that part made perfect sense. Right. I think the place where I had a moment was when you said that body over there. I can't remember exactly what you said. It's, it's my body too. It's our our yeah. share, and that's where I think. Well, you know, really, when you start talking about the body, that's especially where people say, "Hold on a second. You know, uh, I woke up. I went to the bathroom this morning. Dan wasn't there with me. This was a private moment that I yeah. had. I'm just using a, a gross example to be funny, <laughs> but I'm just trying to say, like, or especially if our body is suffering in some way, and your body isn't." There's clearly some real distinctions going on between our bodies right now. I have a disease. You don't, for example, someone yes. might be thinking. So help, help me understand the intraconnected perspective when it comes to the sense of having a separate body. Yeah, absolutely. So one way to think about it is, and this is where the subtitle we comes in, where um the interconnected wholeness is not about giving up the differentiated inner experience that as Tammy, you have in that body going to the bathroom or that Dan, this body going to the bathroom, having a disease. So glad we brought it to this level. Yes. Dan, I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> this body talk. So, <laughs> you know, so we have this, um, we have the reality that you have an inner experience of self and yes, your inner experience is differentiated. It's distinct, as you're pointing out, from that of this body. Then there's an inter-experience, which is the communication we're having with each other now. And when you put the me of the inner and the we of the inter together as we, then you realize, whoa, that's like the wholeness of it all. So in the forest, for example, yeah, I had the do what this body needed to do to survive those three days. And the trees were doing what they did with their roots and their leaves. Um, so we had the inner, and we had a way of communicating with each other in an inter. And there was the intra, just to introduce that notion, that was the wholeness of it all. So that um, it wasn't as if, oh, I heard the trees speaking to me let me protect them. It was more like their inner experience called out for protection. This body as a human body might be able to do something like continue working for ecological protection, uh, maybe write a book on interconnection, um, you know, maybe speak to people about all the things we can do to protect life on earth, uh, which is related to other things like social injustice that we can get into. But you know, so then it, it was this uh, integration, I would use that word, of differentiating the inner and the inter and bringing them together as the intra. So this is, you know, in some ways, it's, um, it's like an identity lens where, yes, you have an identity lens of inner, that's Tammy, and I have it as inner as Dan. Then there's the Dan-Tammy relationship, and then there's the Dan-Tammy relationship with everyone listening to us right now. And then there's the wholeness of it all. And I don't know what words we have in English for that, but the notion of we tries to capture that, that we are both an inner and an inter, and there's a wholeness to being the whole system of life. 
I think it's so important to honor all three, the inner, the inter, and the infra in the way that you're describing, Dan, because I think one of the things that happens is sometimes when there's this focus on our, I'll use a word that you don't use, but people sometimes use, our oneness, there's a sense of there being an erasure of our uniqueness, of our differences, of our distinctions. And there's something about that that feels uh, offensive in a way. Like, you know, don't, don't take away what has come through my biological lineage that's unique in my experience, uh, whether that's of ethnicity or my DNA strands or whatever it might be. So help me understand how we can, and you do this so beautifully in Intraconnected, have this deep honoring and respect for what makes us different, while at the same time, we're connecting to what is our intraconnected shared fabric. Yeah, well, that's so it's so great the way you're articulating that, Tammy. I, you know, um, in in trying to go from that experience in the forest to seeing what might be done through action in the world, um, you know, I started because you know, I have this addiction to writing books. You know, I started pursuing how to get these ideas together. I actually assembled. Uh, a group of about two dozen people from all walks of life to do a pre-book book club to, you know, offer insights into what they would like such a book to be for it to be useful across all these different backgrounds that they had, racial backgrounds, gender identity, sexual orientation, uh, education, uh, culture, age. It was an incredibly diverse group. Um, and, and that input was very important to seeing how to put words to this. And then turning to indigenous teachings, which in many ways for thousands of years have been teaching this, uh, as have contemplative practices for thousands of years independently. And when you find a common ground across independent pursuits, E.O. Wilson, the sociobiologist um, who passed recently, he names that consilience. So that's a beautiful term from E.O. Wilson's bringing back from the 1800s, actually, that word, consilience. So the indigenous teachings from millennia, from thousands of years ago, contemplative teachings, have taught about the oneness of things. Now, in modern times, in science, for example, modern Western-based science, we have the field of anthropology, which might say there's an individualism within, for example, the United States, and then there's collectivism, where you lose the individual, and they talk about these two extremes that are studied. And I couldn't find anything named that was in between, you know, that said, can you have an honoring within like this word oneness you're bringing up? Could you have something that was not going full on collectivistic and getting rid of individualism versus individualism that said, do it on your own? And that's kind of where the we word came from, was I had been given giving talks saying, me to we, which rhymed, so I kind of thought that was fun. And one of my students, uh, who is um, from the Lakota tribe, she said, you know, that's offensive, you know, uh, me to we, even though you're telling us we should know our history, our lineage, our personal history and attachment, we should be in our bodies, aware of our bodies. That's all me. And I said, yeah, she goes, but your title is me to we. And that phrase implies get rid of the me. 
And I said, you know, you are absolutely right. She said, well, come up with something else. So I said, okay, not only me, but in addition, the collective we. She goes, that's too clunky. So I said, okay, well, if you integrate something, you honor differences and you promote linkages, yet in the linking, you don't lose the differentiation. So I guess you would say me is real and we is real. So if you, something like, I don't know, we, and she goes, that's it. You know, so that's when I started using the word we. And it's been, and I don't know if this is what you were feeling, Tammy, but it's been a kind of liberating linguistic term, we and interconnected, that say, you know something, we don't have to choose between oneness and individuality. You actually can have both. And in some ways, it connects to what in contemplative teachings, especially in Buddhism, people talk about relativistic versus universal. And there's some interesting science consilience that might help us understand that in other ways too, um, so that you don't have to have either one. And interconnected, in a way, tells you your inner, your inter, and there's a wholeness to it all. So you don't have to choose. You can integrate, meaning you differentiate the inner and the inter, and even the wholeness of it all. And it's all important, but they're distinct, and you can bring them together. Tell me more about linkage. In the book, you, you talk about linkage as an expression, we could say, or a form of love. So how, how does linkage integrate all of these distinctions and act as an activity of love? Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, the, the parenthetic brief story about linkage being love, um, and this, uh, th this won't sound maybe weird to you, but when it happened to me, it was unusual, and I was kind of surprised. But, you know, I have this um, uh, a clinical practice. I have a practice as a therapist, and um, two conciliant ideas had come up. One was that integration, you know, the honoring of differences, the promoting of linkages might be the base of well-being. Um, the second conciliant idea was that for intentional change, we needed consciousness. So then I said, well, what if you, like, what if you actually brought those two together? What if you integrated consciousness? So then I had people differentiate the different elements of consciousness, like the knowns of your senses that bring in the outside world or your bodily sense that brings in the inside world or your thoughts and emotions and memories, things like that. And even your sense of relationality, what if you differentiate those from each other, but then you link them by moving the spoke of attention in this wheel metaphor, you'd move it around the rim and even ultimately bend it into the hub, which represents the knowing of awareness. So. Um, my patients in therapy started getting better. They started getting less anxiety. Um, if they were mildly to moderately depressed, they started getting better. They started um, you know, really feeling a kind of empowerment in their lives. If they were facing terminal illness, unfortunately, they and having a panic about that, it could help them come to peace about dying. And it was like really freaky for me, like, whoa. I don't know what's exactly happening. So I, I thought maybe it's just some quirky thing of my belief in it, or I don't know. So I started teaching it to my students who are therapists. They started finding positive effects. 
for themselves and their personal lives and for their clients. So then I started doing it in workshops. And before the COVID-19 pandemic, I did it with 50,000 people in person. And because I'm a scientist, I would you know, pass the microphone around in workshops and say, what was that like for you? And here's the linking and love connection. When people would bend that spoke around, this part of the practice, into the hub, all around the world, whether they had never meditated before in their lives or were teachers of meditation, when they would bend the spoke into the hub, a very common statement was, I'm connected, I'm linked to everything and everyone here, and I'm filled with love. And they would also say a phrase, it's empty but full. And if I get the chance to ask them, well, what does that mean, empty but full? They go, I have no idea what it means. It's just what it feels like. Love, this open awareness, and this connection. And then I started wondering if this universal experience, that is, I did this like on every continent on earth except Antarctica, um, where people would say in the hub of that wheel was love and connection, you know, connection being a synonym for linking. And, and then I started wondering, wow, maybe there's something about the way, and this, this can get kind of abstract, so I don't want to get abstract, but the way energy flow can be understood from a scientific point of view can give us some insights, which I'm happy to go into, but the bottom line is when you study the science of energy, energy can be seen in large accumulations we call matter, and then there's a lot of separation both in time and space, but when you come to small elements, units of energy, like electrons or photons, there are no longer these noun-like entities of separation, but there's massive linkage and things are more like verbs. They're unfolding processes with tremendous amount of connection of linkage. And I think the hub of that wheel as a metaphor is actually tapping into this microstate, if science physicists would call it a quantum realm, there's two realms we live in, this microstate quantum realm is where there's massive linkage. And that in the workshops, these 50,000 people, those who spoke up would talk about that linkage of love in the hub. So that just as a scientist, what was shocking and kind of freaked me out was going, if I'm gonna be true to being a scientist where you doubt everything, you question everything, but you look at what the data is, it looks like pure awareness, linkage and love are all part of the same fabric of reality. To be a scientist is to doubt everything, you know, and, 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 and be super careful about ever saying you think something's true. So what I'm saying is just a lot of questions and a lot of question marks. Dan, let me make sure that people who are hearing about this wheel of awareness practice that you did all over the world with so many different people actually understand the practice. So is there a way you could just briefly, as you mentioned it, but help us enter right now that sense of being in the hub? Yeah, well, I mean, the best way to be in the hub is to do like what I do every morning, you know, is to do the wheel as a practice. And that would take, you know, half of our time. But, but I'll just say that, um, let me describe what it is, and maybe you could get a feeling for it just in the description. Um, 
imagine you know a wheel where there's an outer rim and there's a center hub right it's actually a table in our office um and imagine a singular spoke and this is a metaphor so there's there is an actual table but we're just going to use the image of a wheel as a metaphor for what consciousness is about and the simplest way of looking at consciousness is that you have two things at a minimum in consciousness you have the experience of the knowns of consciousness the things you're aware of and then the knowing which is awareness right and so when we talk about the word consciousness it involves both the knowing and the knowns the knowing being awareness the knowns being the thing you're aware of then if you start with the thing you're aware of we're going to put them spatially in our metaphor on the rim and we'll divide the rim into four parts i think they're about energy flow patterns so i'll just phrase it that way this is one hypothesis but in the the first segment of the rim are energy from outside of the body you're you're in right so this would be what you see with your eyes that's photons what you hear with your ears that's the movement of of air molecules that are hitting your your eardrum there's smell that is odors that you pick up which is chemical energy there's taste which is chemical energy on your tongue and also your nose um and then there's touch which is kinetic energy on your skin so all of those are energy flow from outside the body and they're the things that are the knowns right so you move the spoke to each one of those you differentiate them take a deep breath you move the spoke over to the second segment and this is a segment where you explore energy from inside the body so what does that mean it's the sensations of muscles and bones it's the sensations of genitals it's the sensations of organs like your intestines or your lungs or your heart and one by one we differentiate all of these elements on the second segment of the rim from each other and then you take a deep breath after you've brought in all the signals from the body whatever is coming and then you go to the third segment and this would be what we might call mental activities even though it's all mental activities this is probably the head brain you know because you have a brain around your heart and a brain around your intestine which we just explored but in this third segment it's probably you know mostly in the head but it's things like emotions and which come from body signals as they're interpreted by the head brain um you know your thoughts your memories your hopes your dreams your longings desires beliefs attitudes all that stuff would call mental activities and in the first two segments we did focus attention and here in the third segment we shift to another pillar of mind training if you will where you're opening awareness you just say bring it on what's in here and the fascinating finding is that when people say bring it on come on even though you know when you do a breath awareness practice and a distraction like a memory comes up you are intentionally letting the distraction go and return to the breath here you're saying bring it on and for many people who are bombarded by a monkey mind chatter you know now things get really quiet when they say bring it on so it's really fascinating but there what you're asking people to do is just be aware of those mental activities then to actually study them how they first present to awareness stay present and leave awareness and if they're not just replaced by another mental activity what does the gap feel like between two mental activities we'll talk about that gap in a moment but then one of my clients said you know can i bend the spoke and i go what do you mean this is when i was first doing that back in the late 90s 
she said, can I bend the spoke? I said, why would you bend the spoke? She goes, I want to see what's in the hub. So I said, well, okay, because we hadn't done that initially when I was trying this out with my patients. So she bends the spoke around, and that was the first time, you know, and I wasn't really, I wasn't a meditator. You know, I was just doing this like a reflective integration of consciousness practice. Um, and she said, whoa, and she felt this incredible love. She was crying, and it was just my patient. So I thought, okay, this is some unusual thing. She's bending the spoke. What an interesting idea. But after doing it with thousands of people, and this is the common experience, and I certainly get it when I do it every morning, there's a feeling like you've entered a different realm, almost like you can walk on the land and that's one realm. You jump into a lake and the properties of swimming in a lake are just different from the properties of walking on the land. And no one kind of freaks out that you have two realms of water and land. Um, but this is something that physicists are telling us. We have two realms in one reality. We have the macrostate realm of the body, large things like molecules or an apple falling from the tree like Newton studied or planets, you know, these large objects. And they are now like entities, but then there's this realm of small things. Anyway, so there was like, she had this experience and then people, I made that a part of the routine to bend the spoke around into the hub or just let go of the spoke and just be in the hub. And then when you straighten the spoke out and go to the fourth segment, that's your relational connections. So people you know, your spouse, your friends, uh, your colleagues, your people who live in your community, people in your city, your state, your country, all of humanity, all living beings. And then, you know, I presented this to Richie Davidson's lab up in Wisconsin. They were so excited about this practice and they said, well, why don't you do loving kindness statements? And I said, this is just a science practice. There's no evidence that shows that that helps. They go, we have the first study to show loving kindness meta, you know, practices help and it integrates the brain. And this was an integration practice. So I said, okay. And then Barb Fredericton, she found the same thing. So I put some loving kindness statements inspired by Sharon Salzberg right in there because they were science-based. So then you end the whole thing with, you know, um, loving kindness statements for all living beings to the inner me. And then I got in we. So you, you end the whole practice with we. And it's, it's, I, I was so happy because I couldn't figure out how do I get we in here? You know, but, I, but it ends with, you know, loving kindness statements to us. And, uh, and that's the practice. And, you know, it's amazing, but it has the three pillars that, that research shows have all sorts of positive effects of improving immune system function, lowering stress, optimizing cardiovascular function reducing inflammation by changing epigenetic controls, and even um, optimizing an enzyme, telomerase, that repairs and maintains the enzyme chromosomes. The bottom line of all that is it's really healthy for your body to, to the three pillar practices, focused attention, opening awareness, and building kind intention. So it turns out the wheel just has all three, and you get this opportunity to explore things. And in addition, you integrate your brain. You literally change the structure and function of the brain with three pillar practice. So, you know, I do it every day. And when I sent this, uh, the manuscript for the first book, aware about this, you know, Alyssa Eppel had written the book with Elizabeth Blackburn, who got the Nobel Prize for discovering the, the telomeres and the telomerase that's optimized. What they said to me, what Alyssa wrote to me in particular was, 
you need to say in your book, three pillar practice, like the wheel slows the aging process. And I said, that's audacious. She goes, we've proven it. Elizabeth got the Nobel prize for showing it. You got to say it. So I had to add that audacious comment uh, that when you do this meditative practice, three pillar practice, it actually slows the aging process. Now, in terms of connecting the practice, the wheel of awareness, with how we come to know who we are, ourself, how we come to say, I am inner, inter, and intra-connected. Can you make that more explicit for me, how the practice maps yeah. onto that? Absolutely. Well, you know, when people go through uh, the interconnected book, which is both about, you know, conceptual knowing, you know, called noesis, and also experiential knowing called gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. What I wanted to do was to have it be a journey. So I invite the reader to actually do the wheel practice. So I'm really glad you're asking about this, as well as these nine domains of integration you explore. And what people have shared with me, and I was hoping this might be the case, was that by combining conceptual knowing, like these ideas we're talking about, with the experience of, and, and I'll, I'll say this in a way you're going to have to help me, Tammy, because you know I can get kind of abstract. Uh, it's just kind of how my mind works. But I think what happens is we're born into a body for lots of reasons. Life is hard, and we really are driven for certainty because we have predictive brains basically that if we can be certain of what's going to happen next we're more likely to survive so because we live in a body which is in this macro state realm of noun-like entities of separation we have an identity as an entity to give us certainty but you know rashid the artist whose quote is on the brooklyn public library it says Having discovered the flimsy fantasy of certainty, I decided to wander. So a lot of us don't wander. You know, in many ways, sounds true, I think, is an incredible gift you're giving to the world because you're saying, look, there's a journey of wandering past what modern culture tells us is what reality is. There's something more. There's different voices, but it's one journey, as you beautifully say. And I think what Sounds True is really doing is, and this is now, this could be totally wrong, but I think it's asking us to relax that flimsy fantasy of certainty that Rashid talks about, to allow us to go from the certainty of the macro state realm of being in a body of separation, there's Tammy there, there's Dan here, there's whatever your name is in your body that's listening, to then dip a toe perhaps into this other realm because what happens in that other realm is there are no nouns there are only verbs and the nobel prize was given just recently for the establishment from physics that you know what's called non-locality is a real thing that is in the quantum realm, these microstates. So it's not doesn't have to be something weird, but in the microstate realm, what in the Newtonian macrostate world we say are separation, 
of noun-like entities separated in time, separated in space. In the quantum realm, that is not happening, right? And I could talk to you about the science. You want to know about that. But when we dip our toe into that, even for a brief glimpse in the wheel practice, you can drop into that hub, which I think is the quantum realm, pure awareness. And I think there's lots of meditative practices that offer it. The wheel just offers a really clear you know, metaphor. Here's the hub. Here's the rim. They're distinct, which I think they are. And we have a macro state realm on the rim where we think we're all separated. So if you do the practice of the wheel, what it gives you experientially is a feeling of how deeply connected we are. So, you know, we had a, a beautiful congressman, Elijah Cummings, who was an African-American uh, congressman from Baltimore. And Elijah reached out to me and said, you know, we're having a lot of murders in Baltimore. Can you come to Baltimore and do some work with people who are really not able to talk to each other? So I said, I'll do it. So I came and Elijah and I did a meeting of, you know, black individuals and white individuals who had never sat in the room together. Before we got started, when people were just gathering, you could feel the tension. It was really painful. I do the wheel of awareness practice in the room with people who never meditated before in their lives. Um, and I'd done this in parliaments and Congress and all sorts of other places where I, I had similar effects. So I felt like this was a good thing to do in that setting, places of a lot of tension. And after people bent the spoke around into the hub and they came out of the practice, they started talking about how before they did the practice, they saw their separation and they, they didn't feel like there was anything that going to happen. But now they could feel as they looked to the person of the, of the other race, that in fact, they were each other. They would use phrases like that, Tammy. And Elijah was going, what did you just do? And I said, I didn't do anything. I just gave them an opportunity to drop into the awareness that knows the truth of our connections. I didn't have the word interconnected back then, but, you know, it, it, and, and so the people in the room and Elijah Cummings was like going, this is magic. And I said, it's not magic. It's, it's a meditation practice that allows you to go on that journey. And then, you know, you quickly pop back out into your body so they could leave and forget this. But experientially, they know it's true. And, and in the interconnected book, you know, the reason I invite the reader to do the wheel is because you can have any author, blah, 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 tell you all sorts of things. And that's the limitation of a book versus like a sure, dance. Sure, sure. But, so I wanted them to have the experience. So that's the overlap is that I think when you, and it's where, even though I know people may find it abstract, I had to put it into the book because to really answer your question, which I try to do in the book, you know, um, we need to understand why most human beings start with the experience of separation and I go through the developmental you know, period from infancy on to adulthood and looking at these things in modern culture that reinforce separation, but then seeing those moments across the lifespan, infancy, toddlerhood, you know, elementary school, you know, primary school, adolescence, adulthood. And I say, look, those are opportunities to make a difference in the world. Now, Dan, I want to ask you uh, about something you said. You you mentioned that it's our investment in certainty, in in your view, that is one of the main factors that keeps us locked 
into this sense of identifying with separation. You call it in interconnected, the solo self. We want to feel certain. And I'm curious what you think about this, because when I think of the investment in being separate, I think of something like a need to survive, like just the part of me that wants to make sure that I, the body, survive and am you know, here. So that's not really so much about certainty as it is like a survival drive. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, first of all, I, I've just got to say this to you, Tammy. I love your mind. It's oh. so wonderful the way you think so deeply about things and see the clarity that is needed for us to go forward. So thank you. It's, it's, it's such a joy to be with you. Um, what I think about that is, you know, um, when you look, and, and I'm, I'm trying to parse through the different uh, angles to approach this great question. When you look at, um, let's say, the cortex, the higher part of the human brain, people call it an anticipation machine meaning it is always trying to anticipate what is happening next. And the way it does that is it seeks out patterns. And the, the feeling of seeing a pattern is I can know with some degree of certainty what is going to happen next. So in our cortex, in a way, we're always living a step ahead of the present moment. And it's part of I think the beauty of mindfulness is to try to get, you know, before that anticipatory brain. Now, the way the brain also works is it learns from experience, this cortex. And so the way it, number one, detects a pattern so it can know certainty, it then creates what are called top-down filters. So it says, okay, I know there's a dog barking, um, I know it's a dog. I know how a dog behaves. I know I could be careful if it's a wild dog or not worry about it. So I'm going to put a filter on that bark so I don't have to go, oh my God, amazing. It's just a bark. No. So through the top down experience, I filter things through this lens of certainty. So I can be certain I know how a dog behaves. I'm going to survive. So certainty is the method of survival. So you're absolutely right. Um, it's about how do I, as a little baby, a toddler, a person in primary school, how am I going to survive? And I think part of why we need a journey towards, you know, whether you use the word spiritual for this larger sense of connection or, you know, personal transformation, whatever words we use for it, the reason we need it is that if in modern culture, beginning with your parents, then your teachers and your peers in school, and then out in society and the messages get at work, and all of them are messages of the solo self that is about separation. And the illusion of that is, oh yeah, I'm an entity. This entity has defining features that have certainty to it. So who I am in this identity, the features that define me, is this body. And when I only put it in the body, and I use this acronym SPA, that the sensations, the S, the perspective, the P, and the agency 
of my selfhood is just about this body, it gives me some kind of certainty. When we expand that to realize, and my dear friend and colleague, you know, uh, Joanna Macy, you know, Joanna beautifully talks about, you know, world as self and world as lover. And in, in many ways, uh, in writing this book and being close to Joanna, you know, her inspiration for this body of Dan was, you know, how do we actually allow people to relax that drive for certainty, which is a drive for survival? Because ironically, and this gets, I think, to the incredibly um, urgent importance of your question, Tammy, the more, I'll call them what people call them, the threats we have in the world of increasing social injustice and racism, of the polarization and misinformation, uh, of the way people are addicted to screens, the loneliness people experience, and environmental destruction. In many ways, you can call all those pandemics. They're all around the world now. And the viral pandemic, of course, another pandemic. All these things we could experience as threats. What the brain does with a threat is it closes down to try to achieve more certainty, saying who's in the in-group versus who's in the out-group. I want to keep the out-group away from me. And if you're in my in-group, I'll treat you with more kindness and care. But if you're in the out-group, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of you as in any way I need to. And I think we're seeing that on the planet now. So never before, well, I don't want to say that, but now we need in an intense way, maybe it's happened before too, but we need it in a very intense way to say the natural reflex for certainty for survival is for separation. And we get this feeling of a lack of abundance and then we constrict ourselves. Now we need, ironically, to actually even more go towards the deeply connected nature of our lives because all these pandemics in some ways you could say are either worsened by or even caused by the lie that our identity is only in the body the solo self so you know the writing this book was i knew it wasn't going to be like you know the popular book on the corner because it's a hard request to say even in the face of threat Let's try to open up so that the quote in group becomes all of life. And maybe the out group becomes, you know, threats to well being, you know, so that, you know, what I said to Joanna, because she was saying a lot of the people she works with are burning out because they've they're caring about the world and the world is in a tough place. So I said to Joanna, because I have a dance background, I said, you know, if the human brain is in a threat mindset it's going to burn out with fighting or fleeing or freezing or fainting, these four Fs of the threat state. And it's okay for a few minutes or maybe a few hours, but you can't sustain it for weeks and months and years. So what if we supported people, and this was the whole idea of the book in many ways, to go, okay, I can shift my mind to a challenge mindset. And instead of being driven for the certainty for survival, yeah, I can be about survival, but I see the bigger picture. And I, I take on these issues of the world as challenges, not as threats, and then see them as dance partners. And I wake up in the morning, and I've been doing this myself, this phrase, what is the dance partner today? What's the music of today? Instead of seeing all these things that are happening that you can say are horrible, and I'm helpless, and oh my God, it's terrible, terrible. We can understand why people do that, because things are hard. 
but you can actually see them as challenges and see it as a dance that we take part in. And Joanna was super excited about that. And, you know, that's my hope of the gift of the book is to say, you know, something, this is hard stuff. Here's the abstract view of, you know, probably what it's about is we're going Newtonian separation, noun entities. So we want certainty for survival, but actually what we need to do to survive as life on earth is realize how deeply connected we all are. Okay, let me ask you a, a practical question, which is the person who says, you know, when I'm in a protected, peaceful place, maybe I'm taking a walk, I can feel the intra connection. I can turn the spoke around. I can rest in the center of that empty hub, the empty wheel. I can rest there. Life is filled with potential. But when I feel scared, when I feel worried, when I feel the sense of threat, that's not where I am. That's not where I am. I, I, I actually experience myself contracting and I'm in a self-preservation mode. And come on, I bet Dan gets into self-preservation states too. And all of these great spiritual teachers, if you, you know, if you took a bunch of their money away, or if they had a bunch of people close to them uh, who were ill, they might get contracted and feel the kind of threat that I feel. What do we do then? Yeah, absolutely. You know, everyone is human and we can go on automatic pilot like that. Um, there's a story to address this, the question you're raising, Tammy. It's a little uh, painful, so, but I think it's important if I can Let's share do it, it yeah. with you. Um, and so if, if this starts to trigger something in you listening to Tammy and me as I share this story, you know, please take care of yourself. Um, and because we're facing so many difficult things, and Tammy's question, your question is so important, you know, and it's the ultimate question, because if we keep on going into survival restriction mode, we're not going to make it. It's going to be a serious, serious problem on Earth. So here's the story. I was teaching at a workshop. And, you know, we were doing the Wheel of Awareness practice. Um, uh, just as a sidelight, you know, um, one of the researchers who was teaching with me, Dacher Keltner, um, uh, gave the mystical experiences scale um, when people came out of the wheel, when they got into the hub, and he got scores similar to as if people were on, you know, psilocybin, as if, you know, what, what people would do in, in research studies of psychedelics, um, where they were feeling open and connected and stuff like that. So we were all kind of in that. And then one of the participants raised his hand and he goes, uh, I have to, a story I want to share with you. And I'll change a couple of things for his own privacy. Um, but he says, you know, my two adolescent daughters, you know, I had this terrible thing happen and and people thought I had lost my mind. And so they said, Dad, you, you know, they read my book Brainstorm um, so for adolescents. And they said, you have to go to hear this guy, Dan uh, Siegel, speak at this workshop. So he came to the whole workshop. He's not like a workshop goer. Um, and he shares the following story. He was in a certain setting um, with, uh, with a, a friend, and someone came up to them, and in front of him, his friend was murdered uh, with a knife, and then the murderer turned to him and um, was murdering him, stabbing him in his neck, 
and and it, it was terrible, terrible, terrible. And the next thing we know in the story, as he's telling it, is he's waking up in the hospital, and they're doing surgery on him, and he survives. Um, he is in this kind of peaceful state, and people think he's lost his mind. Why would he be peaceful after he's been attacked like this? So he's at home, and his daughters then say, you know, hey, Dad, you know, something happened, which I'll tell you in a moment. You need to go to this workshop. So he he had, right before he came to the workshop, he was asked by the person who was arrested and now was on death row, uh, um, or I guess he was getting ready for a trial. It's, it's a long story, but anyway, he's, he's in prison and he, he asked to see this person he had stabbed. So this guy agrees to go and he goes and he's with his friend's murderer and his attacker. And the guy goes, um, I just need to know what happened. And so the workshop participant says to the attacker, what do you mean, the prisoner? He says, I killed your friend right in front of you. And then I was killing you. And you looked at me with such beautiful, loving eyes. I felt so connected to you, the prisoner says. I felt so much love coming from you. I couldn't kill you. So I didn't. But I needed to know what happened. And the guy goes, that's just how I felt. As he's telling us this in the workshop, he then says, now I understand why my daughters sent me here to the workshop. That hub is where I went in this horrible experience. I, that's exactly when I bent the spoke around just a few minutes ago in the, work, in the wheel practice. That's exactly where I was, full of love, full of connection, full of this open awareness, you know, and he goes, now I know I didn't lose my mind. I found my mind. Well, everyone's hearing this is going, oh, my gosh, you know. And we all went out because it's a, a retreat. We were living together. You know, we all went for food together and talking about stuff, just chatting about it. But the hub, you know, which is a metaphor for, I think, what I call the plane of possibility, this, this generator of diversity, this quantum state, you know, for me, that from the science point of view, that's what it is. But from the experiential point of view, to address your question, sure, we can all go into reactive mode, fight, flight, freeze, and faint, for sure. And sometimes we need to do that to deal with whatever's going on. But this story, this is a true story of this event that happened, um, is I think in also a metaphor for as life is happening and things are, seem like they're murdering us, we need to go to that place, that hub. We need to find a way to have to come from this place of love, you know, so that we we dance with what's going on. In many ways, you could say that's how he danced. He he saw his assailant as a dance partner in that moment and just looked at him with linkage and love. And that transformed the whole outcome. I think it's the same thing with what's going on now with racism. It's certainly what Elijah Cummings and I experienced in that room. When you look at environmental destruction, you know, when we separate ourselves as a species out from living beings, we're using Earth like a trash can. So in all these ways, while it is an understandable, automatic way, so your, your hypothetical questioner said, I'll bet Dan does this too. Of course I do. You know, because I'm living in a human body that has the fight, flight, freeze, and faint reactions to threat. So... 
part of the challenge is I, I know we can do it as a human species. Bigger question is, will we raise our consciousness enough? I think it sounds true. You have all sorts of pathways to do this. Joanna, Joanna Macy has for decades been saying we need a quantum change in consciousness. So what she was so amused about, about reading Interconnected was literally, this is the quantum change, not just using that quantum word like, oh, it's a big change, but it's saying, I drop beneath the noun-like separation of the Newtonian macrostate world, and in reflective practices, I access this space of love. It's as if it's like the tapestry of reality is of love and connection. So that's where this guy who was attacked teaches us that it's possible if you're being murdered and that's where you go. And he wasn't a meditator. It's, it's literally, and I think you've said this so long, Tammy, in such beautiful ways, this is literally in each of us. So there's something you call pervasive leadership. Each of us has the capacity to tap into that hub, to go into that spaciousness. And what emerges is our deep interconnected nature. And, and this is where, you know, I know we don't want to create new words unless we have to, but in this sense, at least in English, and I haven't found in any other language, by the way, I keep on asking when I go around to different countries, you know, the talking about the connectivity within the whole from the sensation, yes, the perspective, the P and agency of the whole, that's, I think, where human cultural evolution needs to move. And I think, I really think we can do this. The question is, will we, and I'm hopeful we will, if we have the right tools that are tools of the mind. And I think that we can do this. Dan, sometimes when uh, people interview me, when the tables are turned, they ask me this question that I never know how to answer. So I'm going to ask it to you. They say, okay, who are you? Tammy, tell us, who are you? And I'm like, oh God, really? I don't know how to answer that. So many different layers or dimensions or ways to answer a question like that. How do you answer that question if I say to you, who are you, Dan Siegel? Mm. You know, I, if I wanted to be simple and direct, I would say I'm energy. And this energy takes many forms. It's taking place in that body called Tammy. It's taking place now in the space of this conversation and anyone listening. It's taking place in this body called Dan. Uh, and the eye of sensation, perspective, and agency, that saying, what's our identity, you know, it's energy. And so it is, you know, it's raining here. I can see the plants. I've got a, a dog here. Um, you know, I'm energy. And, 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 and that's actually how it feels. And in that energy is the linkage that is love. So it would be equally simple and equally real to say that I'm love. And I say that as a scientist, Tammy, I'm saying it, you know, and you know, I was dear, close friends with John, John, John O'Donohue, you know, we would teach together. And even though, you know, his background was different as a philosopher and Catholic priest and poet and mystic, we would all, we would teach together. And 
even this book we were writing together, you know, was was really about love. It was about transforming uh, our ways of being on earth, you know, in this deeply linking way. And we did it from these different perspectives, but we could teach. He would bring up poems and bring up, you know, things from Irish mysticism. And I would say to John, you know, well, what does it mean to be a mystic? And he goes, it was someone who believes in the reality of the invisible. And I said to John, I said, well, I'm trained as a scientist. And if I'm going to be true to being a scientist, I do know that the invisible is a part of reality because the human eyes can only see so much. So part of what we don't see, and certainly Michael Faraday in the 1800s saw it as electromagnetic fields, just to stay with energy, that by feeling this identity as energy, we can see it takes different manifestations. It condenses into matter. It manifests as love. It is the linkage among us. Uh, and, you know, even when my father was dying, Tammy, and he was a mechanical engineer steeped in Newtonian views of reality, and believe me, he didn't show mindsight or anything like that my whole life. But when he was dying, he said, you know, it's unusual for me to ask me a question. Actually, he said, where am I going when I die? And I said, I don't know, Dad. I don't know where you're going. He goes, no, no, no. You probably have an idea about it. And I thought, because he was a big yeller, you know, he was going to yell at me right before he died. So I thought, I don't want to get into this. So I said, I really don't know. He goes, well, just give me your view. I said, okay, well, you know, before you were conceived, all there was was potentiality of all the eggs in the world and all the sperm in the world. There were just huge potentiality, massive uncertainty in this open space, this place. And then one sperm and one egg got together and they formed the unique individual that you are, which given his personality, like that phrase, you know, you're unique. And, he, and I said, so then you get in this manifestation from possibility to actuality about a century to live in this actuality of this body. And I said, so my sense, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but my sense of what happens when the body is done with its century of being in its actualization, as a manifestation of energy, it's going to dissolve back into this sea of potential, this plane of possibility. He didn't know my work at all, but you know that's what I was thinking about, this space. And I think, so I said, that's where you're going. You're going, possibly, to exactly where you were before you were conceived. Well, before I was speaking, his face was very taut and he was very nervous and terrified of dying. It was very close to the end. And his face completely relaxed. And he said, that makes me feel so peaceful. Thank you. And I got to say, you know, this question you're asking me of who are you, you know, by going into this long journey and interconnected is kind of the, I think the word-based articulation in a book as best I can of this journey of that identity to, to say collectively, if we started feeling into that um, in the deep, you know, rigorous way of using the word energy, um, then we, we can understand things even like death. So 
I know for me, you know, this body of Dan will only have so many years, like all of our bodies. And it's changed my, my emotional experience and meaning of, you know, considering dying or my mom is 93 and getting near the end, you know, and that feeling in this body of Dan and the connection with her is just different with this interconnected sensibility of things. So anyway, that's what I would say. I am energy. And a few times you've emphasized this notion of not experiencing ourselves as a noun, but instead in our verb-like nature. And it's interesting because energy, of course, is in motion. It's it's izzying or something. What yeah. does that mean to you to be in the in the verb state? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, well, as Einstein said, you know, energy equals mass times speed of light squared. And all that means really is that mass, like this cup or this body, your body, my body, you know, they're condensed energy. So energy is really what's called a probability field. And what that means is that when it's condensed, it's creating this, uh, this experience we would call of some degree of certainty, you know, this cup is here, I pull it down, this cup is still here, you know, but like that, you know, but it's a cup. In contrast, when energy has not condensed into matter, it is this moving dynamic thing, it's still energy. Um, and what that means is that in a body, which is a noun like entity, you know, we can start having our minds, including our awareness, start to be tricked into thinking it has the certainty of matter, you know, and that what matters in a sense, using that English mixed term, what matters is just certainty and stuff like that. When you drop into the verb-like unfolding and the massive connection of these verb-like events, then the question you asked earlier of, you know, who are you? And now you're asking more specific refinement of that. If you say your energy and it's a verb like, well, I think, what does that feel like? What does that mean? In a way, what it's doing is saying, wow, my awareness begins in this quantum state of massive connection. But I'm aware that there's a body called Dan that this awareness is in that has this certainty momentarily anyway, in what in Newtonian terms we call space and time. But in the quantum realm, Tammy, space and time as dimensions don't exist for all sorts of fascinating reasons. So it's a totally different thing. So in doing the wheel of awareness, for example, that's the practice I do every morning. When I come out of it, there's a feeling, and, and I can only talk about this, the S, the subjective experience, and maybe the P, the perspective, well, maybe even the agency, the wholeness of it, of being a verb is like just, it, it's, it's almost like life becomes more of a dance and issues that before this was kind of a, a practice or a clarity might freak me out or get me really agitated or worried. It, it almost feels like um, there's an opportunity to feel into the connection. So when you reached out, when I, you knew this book was out and I, I told you it was out and you reached out to me and said, will you be in this conversation? The feeling was this kind of, not just excitement that we're gonna to be together and maybe people will hear about the book, which of course is exciting, but the feeling was like, we as a humanity are 
whether you call it relational field or you know culture or connection, we're on this journey through time and space in Newtonian terms. But in quantum terms, we're really on this unfolding of massively connected events. And when we bring to that, that love and connection and that open awareness, it's like a portal through which this process of, it's called optimal self-organization, but it's integration, where we're allowing differentiation to be fully present, allowing linkage to be fully present. So in a sense, we become like portals that integration can move through in the bodies we're in or the events we participate in. So if someone calls me and says, will you do this or that? I check in with my body and I feel, is this a portal through which more integration in the world will arise? Or is it going to decrease differentiation and decrease linkage so it's decreasing integration? And I'm not going to participate. If it feels like it's, a, it's an opportunity to let the portal release integration, then I participate. And that's what I feel like this conversation is, is even if just one person, you know, can be inspired to say, wow, I can adjust this identity lens so that I can realize, yeah, I am a noun as a me. Whoa, I'm also a verb as a we. And when I bring them together, I'm interconnected in this integrated way. I don't have to give up the me. I can also have the we and taken together, that's the interconnection. Then, wow, it's a different way of us moving forward as a human family. It's a different way to move forward as a human family that allows us to um, embrace this uncertainty that is, when you look at this graph, it's maximal uncertainty. And this is why I think it's so hard and why, you know, the journey of sounds true that that you have inspired so many people with, and certainly in interpersonal neurobiology, it feels like it's coming to that place that that when you open to uncertainty, you release the possibility of connection. And this is, I think, um, this is this really incredible moment in our human family to do this. And there's a window to make a change in business as usual. Joanna Macy calls it the great turning. And anything that we can do to actually bring this great turning, which means instead of just the solo self of separation, we realize that we're this we, this interconnected wholeness. It is possible to do. And that's what I hope this conversation can inspire people to, to participate in. However, it comes naturally um, for people to do whatever their interests are, their talents, their situation in life this is a pervasive leadership thing where everyone can be a leader in making this change happen i've been speaking with dan siegel he's the author of the new book intraconnected we me plus we is the integration of self identity and belonging and the book is a deep contemplation into who am i what's going on with me we and we, and how do I open to greater potentiality moving through we right now? It's a gorgeous book. I would go so far, Dan, as to say the book itself, page by page, is a wake up invitation to the people, to we. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks for all your good work and uh, deep service. Thank you. 
And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after the show Q&A conversations with featured presenters and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.